Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is uh, that time of the week, which I always look forward to. It's Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, and that means if you have a question or you've had something on your mind for a long time, maybe you have a question you've always wanted to ask your pastor, but maybe we're reluctant to do so because he's your pastor. So you can ask guys, the guys here, and we will do our very best to answer your questions. And I want to invite you now to think about what question you might want to send over, and you can do it via the text line. And that number is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish, and we are going to do our very best to answer whatever questions come our way. I already have a gentleman welcome, by the way. Good, Good to be here, Bill. Yeah, thank you. I've, I'm all excited because I've already got a question that just came in. It's as fresh as can be. Mm, so should like we start it. with a fresh one? Yeah, those Go are the best it. kind. All right, here's a fresh one. Uh, this came from Gary. He said, I have two questions for Guy Talk this afternoon. Jesus' parable in Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. The first question on this parable concerning the rich man and his manager. What's the meaning of the parable? The second question, was it directed at the manager or the rich man or both? Hmm. You know, I did a whole class on parables, and this was one of the hardest parables of all, I think. And it has the widest variety of opinions, by the way, about what this is actually about. The common interpretation is that this the rich man is the Lord, and I think most commenta- commentaries would say that the rich man is the Lord, and he's commending the man because he acted shrewdly. And generally, it goes along with some kind of message that, oh, and we need to be shrewd in how we deal with the world as well. But I would point out that the manager acted dishonestly and even selfishly. Um, he, he was shrewd in what he did, but he was really dishonest. He was really stealing from the rich guy. I don't think the rich guy is Jesus at all. I think the rich guy was basically commending this guy. Oh, you got me. You got one on me. Now go, go on your way. I think the key to understanding this parable is later in Luke, it says that whoever is, can be trusted with a little, can also be trusted with much, the Lord says. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Well, the shrewd manager was dishonest with a little. And he, he says that in Luke 16, verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you to handle true riches? Well, the shrewd manager is not being commended, but condemned, I believe, in this parable. And and that's the heart that I see in this parable. A little bit different than um, maybe most commentaries would see Mm -hmm. it. Thank you, Jeff. Tom Parrish, what do you say? You know, this is a a tough text because where most people do is they read it and they stop at verse 9. And that's where the problem comes in, where the story seems to end, where he says, you know, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, 
so that when it fails, they may receive you in eternal dwellings. But if you go to, don't go to 10, 11, and 12, this is, this is like Proverbs. This is wisdom literature in the form of what we call a, a parable. Jesus is pointing out the guy who cheated, and in his cheating, he got away with it, and he actually did well for himself. Jesus is saying, wait a minute. You've got to be different than that. Look at verse 10. You know, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in very much. Now he's saying, you have to be different than the world. You can't operate the way we see these shrewd people doing this. You have to work out of wisdom, and that means you need to work out of righteousness. And if I can't trust you with a little, says Jesus, how am I going to trust you with a lot? So I think the problem for most of us with parables, and they're split up this way, is that we think the parable is ended when the next verses almost give the summary or add it up. So look at 10, 11, and 12, even 13. I think it helps bring it all together mm-hmm. and makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, remember what the shrewd manager did. Remember, he he was the the debtors to his master. He went to and cut a backroom deal, yeah. right, mm-hmm. to his own benefit. Mm-hmm. Why in the world, if the rich man was the Lord, why in the world would the Lord be commending such actions? And right. and I would say, no, he would never. In fact, I think the entire point of the parable, like we both point out following the parable, is this language that who's ever been faithful for with a little— and he was not. This is what the world does. Yeah, Jesus, exactly. Jesus, this is a parable of the world. This is the parable of, I hate to say it, politicians and government <laughs> and all kind of people, <laughs> no, all of us. I mean, you don't have to hate to say that. We can be very guilty of this. And when we pull off a bargain or we do something like that, hey, I'll cut your debt if you give it to me right now and I can give it to my master, everybody's thrilled. Jesus is saying, that's the best the world's got to offer. I want to offer you something even more than that. And that's where I go to 10, 11, 12, and 13. It's much greater in the kingdom of God. I don't know if I understand these backroom deals that were cut, but if either of you guys <laughs> slip me a 20 under the table, you'll get more talk time like I talk. <laughs> I brought a couple of 20s today. <laughs> that's, that is being very shrewd, well, by the way, you. Bill. Thank yeah. you very much. Just thank like the parable. Yeah, just yeah, like exactly. <laughs> Practical application, right? I love it. All right, here's a question. Uh, when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples to tell others about the gospel, what were they teaching at the time? Jesus hadn't died or rose from the dead yet. Well, you already have John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus was throughout his ministry, that three-year ministry, he kept unfolding to them who he was. They didn't fully understand it. But when he sent them out, he gave them enough information, and they went out with power, too. They were able to to heal the sick and do those things. So he gave them the message of the gospel, which is that the, the, the God that you think is out there that has all the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, you're condemned, really loves you. And he has come among you, and he is here so that you know the kingdom of God be, can be within you. And I think that is a message, I'm not sure how well they articulated it, but we all got to begin somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I taught speech for many years when I taught high school, and uh, I'll tell you, the first couple of speeches by kids were terrible. Yeah. But over time, they got better and better. And so here they had to begin with what they had, and then they added to it, and it didn't really get good until after the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Mark one fifteen says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we forget a couple of things. One, the good news is good news. The good news was that the Messiah had come. He was yep. there. The kingdom had come. Now, on this side of the cross, the good news is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, the kingdom of God had come. So the second part of that is the kingdom of God. It's come. Jesus 
was from the kingdom. He He's the only one had, who had come from the Father, representing the kingdom on earth. As you said, we need to believe it and then participate in that kingdom, which we do through faith in Jesus Christ. So at the time, just like the thief on the cross believed and was saved and was going to be with Jesus in paradise, he became a a citizen of the kingdom. So to after the cross, now that we have the fullness of the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection, when we believe, we also become citizens of the kingdom. Think about it. If I was a disciple, now these are fishermen, tax collectors. These are these are not your your scholars in that sense. So I'm with Jesus for a year or two years, and he sends me out to talk about the kingdom of God. I don't know anything about the kingdom of God. But what I would do is i go out and say, I've met a man who does. His name is Jesus. Why don't you come and see him? And I have a feeling that's a lot of what went on with them, inviting people to come and hear the message directly from Jesus, because he is, as you mentioned, the light of the kingdom of God that broke through. And this is the first time it really broke through in the history of humankind. Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly what the woman at the well said, right? Come and meet this man who told me everything yeah. about myself. Yeah. You got to meet this guy. Yeah, she was ecstatic, too. And I remind you. people on Sunday morning that, hey, no matter what your sins are, no matter what you fail to do, don't forget, Jesus knows everything about you every sin and still loves you. Mm. And that's what we got to get in our head. Thank he you, already Tom. knows. Thank you, Tom Parrish. And uh, Jeff Fedora are my power panel today for Guy Talk. And if you have a question, send it over. We'll put it on the air. 877-933-2484. Let's get an answer for that question. We'll do our very best uh, to answer whatever it is you have. 877-933-2484. Uh, here's a question. I'm wondering how the names of the books, chapters, and verses of the Bible were determined, and by who, and the history behind that. Good point. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy sat down and started, no, I, you know, the names of the books, the church has, has for the New Testament, let's start with the New Testament, because yeah. the Old Testament was the book of the Jews. It's really the Jews who were the keeper of all the books of the Old Testament. So if you want to really have an answer there, let's, you know, let's get some Orthodox Jews or some people who truly understand, you know, everything about the Old Testament. But generally speaking, there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, a reason why each of the books is called what it is, uh, is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So who wrote the book of John? John wrote the book of John. So, you know, the church circulating this letter around started to call it this letter from John or John the Apostle. Uh, Who wrote, uh, you know, Paul writes to the Romans in the book of Romans. So Mm -hmm. it's the epistle or the letter of Paul to the the Romans. So um, now chapter and verse, I think it wasn't until about the... 300s or 400 well, AD. Even a little beyond that. Is it beyond finally, that? If you look at the original manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts, there are no periods. There are no commas. There are no chapters. There are, None of that is in there. It's written as a letter, but yet it is not written with the grammar that we expect. So that's why in different translations you have commas in different places. Uh, sometimes you'll see whole paragraphs put together or as a run-on, what we call a run-on sentence. Others don't because we have no definitive word where it starts and stops. That's why, and I've always insisted, read it in context. Read the whole chapter, the whole book if you can, so that you don't get hung up on one verse and miss what came before it and came after because they all flow together. And putting the chapter and verse in, I believe, was by the Holy Spirit ultimately because he knew people like Jeff and Bill and I were coming along and needed all the help we could get. Do you know, I, I, I don't know that history of when chapters and verses started because it becomes much easier to reference 
uh, part of the Bible with some kind of oh designation. I mean, it would be very hard to say, oh yeah, you know, 12 lines down at the, you know, from the start of the book of Romans or whatever. So chapter and verse is obviously very helpful, but I don't know that history of when it came into being or when people started adding that. You- I, I'll get the exact date. I know there was a council that, that met and put it together. Uh, I think it was later on though. I think it was more in the six or seven hundreds, but I will double check that. I can be entirely right. wrong, we'll look but I'll find out. Break. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more guy talk or guys who talk, and they're doing a great job. 877-933-2484 is the line to text over your question, and I encourage you to do so. Again, 877-933-2484. This hour is, we call it, guy talk, and we've got uh, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn as the power panel today, so send your questions over. We'll be right back. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. You always think when you take a break that it gives the host and the guests a chance to stop talking for 90 seconds, but that's never the case with Guy Talk. We were talking 100 miles an hour, and what a great uh, topic we were talking about during the break, and that is how wonderful it is that we would be the envy of first century Christians because we have in our homes the entire revealed Word of God. We do. So we were looking some things up over the break and discovered it was the Latin Vulgate that came around in about the 5th century. I think Mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking. And I thought that the chapters and verse came shortly after that. It actually didn't come until the 1227 A.D. So, uh, you know, over a thousand years after the New Testament was written, uh, we got chapter and verse by Stephen Langton. And uh, that was the first time. And we were then talking, isn't it amazing that today... We have more access to the Bible. Most people didn't have a personal printed right. copy of, of the Bible for most yeah. of the 2,000 years of, Christ- of the church. And today, everybody can access the Bible, the Greek language, the Greek word text, the you know definite Greek word definitions. And, and yet, in so many ways, we are so less biblically literate, especially in America, than we were 100 years ago, 200 it's years tragic. ago. But we have it right in our hands all the time. And there's a bad habit of having it in your hands. You think I can get around to it later instead of really putting it in now. I had a professor who I had heard a rumor at the seminary that he had memorized the entire New Testament in Greek. <laughs> and so I one day after chapel, I went up, we were having coffee, and I said, is it true that you memorized the entire New Testament in Greek? He goes, is that story still going around? No, I only memorized it in English. I had a professor that memorized it in Greek. And now I'm just, I'm just kind of blown away listening to this. But think about putting the word inside of us. Rarely do we, we don't even do the memory work we used to do. We have so many resources today. You got your your phone in front of you. We still need to put the word inside of us. And as I mentioned uh, before we came into the green room, when I've been with people that are dying, I have been astounded at people that in comas that will start reciting scripture oh. or will start singing a hymn. And they haven't talked in two, three, four days. And all of a sudden they're singing or they're doing this. 
and it's a wonderful thing to observe. Have you done a major memory section of Scripture? Yes. What did you do? Well, I'm, I memorized almost the entire Gospel of John. I worked on Colossians. Wow. I worked on some other things. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just praying. My honest prayer is that the Lord will keep my mind sound until the day I die because I don't want to get it locked up inside and not get Amen. it out. Amen. I did Matthew 5, 6, and 7 one time. Wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Here's a question. What is the best way to speak to a non-Christian friend or family member who has lost a non-believing loved one? Not even necessarily recent. Wanting to give witness for them to come to know Christ, but they will then say, so you're telling me my lost loved one is in hell. Sometimes it's a very difficult conversation. I think we preach to the living. Um if when, if and when they come to that realization, um, you know, they will have to deal with it. But you're worried about the person who's still here right now who hasn't made a decision and isn't saved. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think about the story in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. And when the rich man died and went into Hades, uh, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the Scripture describes— you know, one of the things that he pleaded with Father Abraham, who was across this great chasm over on the comfort side, was send Lazarus back to my household to warn them of this place. He recognized and understood that he wanted his family members who didn't know the Lord to come to know the Lord and believe and be saved so they wouldn't come to this place. Um, that person that you're talking about who's still living is exactly who this rich man was concerned about. And that's who I think we should focus on. Yeah, and that's where you really want to get, ultimately. What I do with people, and I've been privileged to do this a lot, um, first thing I do is do a lot of listening. I want them to tell me what they're really searching for. They can use that as a pretext. That may not be the real issue. It may be something deeper. And usually the deepness is their Mm -hmm. own fear of dying and if they're going to go to heaven or hell. And so I let them do that. And then I'll say, well, would you really like to find answers for that? I mean, I'm just a man. I can tell you what I think, but do you want real answers? Do you want it from the source? And then I have made a habit of giving people uh, the Gospel of John and saying, hey, 21 chapters. Why don't you start reading a chapter a day? Give me a call. Tell me what you think. The good part is, and I can't tell you everybody has done this, but the people that have actually picked it up and read it, usually by chapter 12, they're calling me and saying, hey, this is all real, isn't it? What what have I got to do to receive this Jesus into my life? And I've been privileged to pray with these people and lead them. I think the, the problem is um, I had to learn to get out of the way when I share with people. And I had to let give more room to the Holy Spirit to probe their heart. What are they really looking for? And when we find that, it's amazing how the Lord opens up the door. You know, and that's exactly what the Word of God says. When we preach the gospel, the Spirit comes along with power and deep conviction. Yes. That's exactly what you were describing. Yeah. And I always have a lot of hope for people on their deathbed because I never know for sure what's going through their mind as they're fading in and out. And does God have the capacity to not only reach them in that moment, but do they have the capacity to respond in that moment? And the answer, of course, is yes and yes. Yes, always. Um, You never know a person's last few thoughts. The thief on the cross said, would you remember me? So who knows what's being said? So there might be uh, some delightful surprises in heaven. See, I think we can take that all the way down. You look at kids that are born uh, with different uh, syndromes or kids that have brain damage or kids that don't have a high IQ. Can Jesus still reach them? Well, of course he can. 
it's not a matter of intellect. It is a matter of the Lord speaking to the heart. And even on the deathbed, Bill, as you say, the Lord can still speak to the heart. And I'll tell you, I've been there. I've gotten some profound questions from people on their deathbed <laughs> that, you know, I wish I could get every Sunday, you know, and yet they're right there because they're facing it at the moment and they want the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible declares that it's appointed for men once to die and then face judgment. I believe that every single person until that moment of death has an opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. If you have a question for Guy Talk, let me know what it is. You can text it over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Well, we're talking about the uh, the rich man and the manager. And i got a couple of nice comments. Uh, suggestion from a listener. The Lord is saying money is a fungible tool, not a God. Use it for righteous results. Yes. Um, even worldly businessmen know how to do that. Um, and that is the rich man is simply a rich man and the manager a manager. The parable is not about accountability, but about the unimportance of money except as a means of getting things done. I think you might remember the story. I grew up in Ohio, uh, Toledo. Lima's just down the road. About Lima. Uh, it's called Lima. Okay. Lima, Ohio. <laughs> Stanley Tam, back in the 50s, was just a businessman setting up the United States Plastic Corporation. He didn't have a dime. So he said to the Lord, if you help finance it, I'll give the business to you. Now, that's not the way I advise people to go about business, but that's exactly what happened. And he actually went to court and made Jesus 50% owner of the business. Now, he had to go to four different judges because they all thought he was crazy. Well, then about five years later, he went back to court and put the entire business in the name. And to this day, it is in the name of Jesus Christ and the Mm -hmm. kingdom of God. And all the proceeds from that business go to world missions. And they're spread out all over the world. And his employees have never sought to have a union in 60, 70 years. Mm. They have never sought because they all get more than a fair wage and they're happy working and they have a good atmosphere. I don't know if Stanley Tam is still alive or not, but if you get a chance, read this book. It's a phenomenal book. It sounds like he was trustworthy with a little. He really was. You always wonder about that. You know, you see people that have significant ministries and I always think, I wonder if they were trustworthy with the small things. Mm. And I think that's what the parable was all about, that, mm-hmm. he, you know, like we said, he wasn't commending the shrewdness. It was being faithful to what uh, to what you have. I don't, I don't think the Lord would ever commend shrewdness or dishonesty or selfishness or any of th- the other things that this manager displayed in this parable. Mm-hmm. All right. You're listening to Guy Talk. Uh, my power panel today is Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. I know you've got a question. Send it over. You can text it to 877-933-248. 84. Again, let me tell you that number, 877-933-2484. Got a question that has come up. I think I'm going to have to wait to ask this one on the other side of the break. This might take some time, but uh, I will ask you this because we just have a minute left. If you are on a business trip and it's four in the morning and there's an emergency at your house, does your wife know exactly who she's going to call? Do you have a trusted friend who is at your house at four in the morning? Oh, yes, I do. You do. do. I do. And and your wife would be able to instantly He lives five houses phone. away. Okay. And, he is, and without uh, hesitation, he with would be there. 24-7, okay. and we have the same agreement with them. Yeah. yeah. I do. Too. I think I do, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's important to have. They're, by the way, they're Christians. Uh, they're part of a men's group that I have on Tuesday mornings. It's called our Iron Man group. As iron yes. sharpens iron, so one man's faith sharpens yeah. another. Yeah, I think it's important that there's that kind of understanding accountability and, and, 
And in a moment, someone will be there. Well, and we have your phone number too, Bill. Yeah, of course, but it's unlisted. All right. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a break. Be right back with more Guide Talk. Send your questions over 877-933-2484. Welcome to the afternoon show. I am Bill Arnold, and we are enjoying Guy Talk, which is what we do this time of the week. Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish are my power panel today. And coming up in the next hour, uh, Todd Mullican is going to be joining me. Maybe you are ready to find some solutions right now for your anxiety. And if you have some, you're going to definitely want to tune in in the next hour as well. Or maybe you know someone who's struggling with anxiety. It's going to be a very powerful hour with Todd Mullican. And that's going to start in about 30 minutes. So uh, hang in there with me. If you've got time, love to have you. And if you have questions for the power panel, send them over. 877-933-2484. Here's a question. If there's time, ask the pastors where dinosaurs fit in in the timeline of creation in Genesis. Since we are told they are millions of years old, yet man has only been on earth for thousands of years and all that was created in seven days. Who wants to take a swing at this? Well, I'll start. The idea that we go back to Adam's creation date, because he didn't have a birth date, he had a creation date, and we can actually use the Old Testament to look at the generations back, because it actually tells us that when so-and-so was this age, he had such-and-such, and and when so-and-so was this age, he had such-and-such, and And you, you work backwards from that, and we find that about... 6,000 years ago is Adam's creation date. That's when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and put him in a garden and made Eve. And based on that timeline, all life on earth, now this is going to be uh, quite different from the world's understanding of you know evolution and millions of years and so on, but I believe the Bible indicates that all life came in the garden about 6,000 years ago. That means dinosaurs were formed about 6,000 years ago, not millions. Now, one of the things that points to this, and it's an amazing discovery, and I think it was about 15 years ago, uh, a woman by the name of Mary Schweitzer discovered that when she dissolved dinosaur fossil bones, what was left was soft tissue. Now, according to her own uh, interviews and stuff on 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 60 Minutes and MSNBC and a number of other places. We know that if these dinosaur fossils were actually millions of years old, as many uh, believe, it would be impossible for them to still have soft tissue in them. But we know that fossils can be made in a very short period of time, hundreds of years, and that is possible if they're only a few thousands of years old primarily from the flood of Noah, which is another biblical event, Genesis 6 and 7, says that everything was wiped out. And I think most fossil evidence that we see in this world is the result of the flood of Noah. If those fossils are thousands of years old, it's very 
uh, likely that you would still see soft tissue. So I think this idea, this discovery of soft tissue, and by the way, they've repeated this over and over and over, and, and many other people have repeated the same experiment where you dissolve the minerals in a dinosaur fossil, and what is left is soft tissue. So I actually believe the biblical timeline is that these fossils are actually thousands of years old, not millions of years old. I agree with you, and here's why. I grew up being taught there's a difference between scientific fact and scientific theory. Well, virtually anything that came before us, like carbon dating or dinosaurs or whatever, is scientific theory on when it came about and how it happened because nobody was there. And so people are guessing. Matter of fact, two people can, two different scientists can carbon date the same material and come up with different ages for the material. And that's happened over and over. I remember I grew up with National Geographic as a kid, and I would always read it. You know, even at 12 years old, I'm reading it. And then I began to notice a pattern. About every two years, there'd be an article, oh, remember two years ago when we talked about this with the dinosaurs? We were wrong. Now we have a new theory, but the problem is we took it on as fact in our culture. And taking it on as fact has led people to believe that it is really millions of years ago. And so then we're asked to try to figure out how the Bible fits in with that. The reality is, it is there are no facts in that regard. There's just theories and those theories keep advancing and changing depending on, and forgive me, how much grant money you can get for the next theory. Yeah, one of the theories is that the Grand Canyon, for example, was formed over millions of years by a little bit of water. Well, from the biblical timeline, there are people who believe in a worldwide flood of Noah that is described in the Bible. They believe look what a lot of water did in a short period of time. Yeah, I think I heard six weeks they're talking about how quickly that was formed. Yeah, so there's two different views. We both look at a hole in the ground or a canyon in the ground, and one says it was developed over millions of years by a little water, and another group says a lot of water over a short period of time at the time of flo- the Noah's flood. Now, do we have an example to indicate which one of those theories might be more accurate? And we actually do. Remember Mount St. Helens? I just showed a couple of these I, videos in my creation class that I'm doing right now, actually. And Mount St. Helens is an amazing example. What happened was when that mountain blew, it basically took out a lake and all this mud and slurry and water slid down and filled up this canyon with layers of sediment. Sound yeah. familiar? Well, it was two years, I believe, after that, when the canyon started to dry out and that sediment started to dry out, another lake formed behind it and broke through the the sediment and and formed a canyon in a matter of hours. And when you look at this canyon, Google it and look at the walls of this canyon, it looks almost identical, except on a smaller scale, to the Grand Canyon. What can we learn? We learn that these kind of formations can have a catastrophic event to create the the, the the strata layers all filled in, and then another catastrophic event, pardon me, that can bust through that to create the walls of the canyon and the canyons. A lot of water in a short period of time. I was privileged, my wife and I, to go down to the Ark in Kentucky, Ken Ham. Have you been there? I've been I've there. I've always yeah. wanted to go down oh, there. Oh, it's the first time I saw the Ark, the full-size real thing. Tears, because I grew up with this, and it was powerful. But he's got a lot of Ph.D. people there from the scientific world that give a very biblical understanding of a lot of this. They talked exactly about what you're talking about. But the one scientist we heard made an interesting point. He said, do you realize that a couple of years ago they carbon dated the lava from Mount St. Helens to determine how old it was? And the closest date they could come up with is the lava— New lava is at least 40,000 years old. Well, we know when it happened. 
And I know because Jan and I did our internship in Portland, Oregon, and we climbed Mount St. Helen about two years before it blew up. Did you really? We climbed the side that went with our son on our back. So I've, I know. I've been there. I've seen it. It's amazing. But here's the thing. Whatever you want your worldview to be, you will then tailor, you know, too much of your scientific value on that. The reality is the Bible has a much longer track record, much more accurate, and from a historical point of view, it's one of the most accurate documents ever written. There's a guy by the name of Dal Tackett who did a movie a couple years ago called Is Genesis History? And it's a, a great study that the Genesis account can be viewed uh, as literal history, human history. He actually has a, is working on a follow-up to that as well. So I've actually met Dell. I've talked to him a number of times. He said this when we were talking about the flood one time. He said, you know, I actually believe that most scientists would believe in a worldwide flood because there's so much evidence for a worldwide flood, except for the fact that the Bible declares that mm-hmm. there's a worldwide flood. And I think he's absolutely yeah, right. He is. There's so much hostility to anything spiritual. Yeah. Well, it, we still want to be God. That's true. <laughs> Human beings want to be God. We don't want anybody over us. And suddenly when we have to admit there is a God who did all of this, we're under obligation. And people don't want to be under obligation to anybody. Yeah. And if we have evidence that the Bible is true, well, then that makes it more credible. And then we might have to look at more of what it says. Oh, it talks about this guy named Jesus, right? Yeah. Hmm. All right. Here's a question. I personally believe that one of the problems with the church in America is that we have no clue when it comes to spiritual warfare. I think Ephesians 6 is just the tip of the iceberg, and very few people really know how to use the sword word of God. What is some advice that you would give to people that feel oppressed or demonized or like they have a monkey on their back? What advice do you have for those that are oblivious to spiritual things? One of the first places I would go, I had the privilege of studying with... uh, Um, Francis McNutt years ago, and he was a Roman Catholic priest who left the priesthood, wound up marrying a uh, psychologist, and they started a ministry, really a healing ministry, but he got into, very heavily into demon possession and casting out demons. His book on uh, Deliver uh, Deliver Us from Evil Spirits, one of the best books I've ever read. I've also dealt with it. I'm not talking theory here. I was taught nothing in seminary about this. I don't know any seminary that does much teaching on this at all. You have to go to extra kind of curricular activities to get this. Or, in my case, I ran into it in people, and I watched people's voices change in front of me, and people do things that I could not explain. And I learned very quickly to call in the name of Jesus and his shed blood, and I have seen people literally thrown to the floor in my presence and with my staff present, And we were all shocked, except there was power in the name of Jesus. And the person came out of it and said, I've never, I felt different than I have in the last five years. So there's power there, but we don't do much with it. But at my church, honestly, we do. We have a a deliverance ministry within the church that is there for people. And we teach people, and I teach Christians, you have the authority to use the name of Jesus and his shed blood. Now, I don't want to get into any forgive me, and I don't want to sound wrong, hocus-pocus or circus activity. That's not what we're about. But we don't want to let people simply struggle when the psychologists and psychiatrists don't know what to do with it. And I've been privileged. I've worked with psychologists, psychologists, and psychiatrists, and I can't tell you their names. They've sent patients to me who they've tried every medication on. They have no idea what to do. And I've been able, not me, but the Word of God and the power of Jesus' blood has brought many of these people back. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, the Bible makes it clear that our battle is a spiritual battle. That's the real battle that we are in. Uh, Ephesians 6 makes that clear. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is our daily, every single Christian's daily battle is a spiritual battle. So Paul says the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world, right? Yeah. So yeah. this is this is how we fight a, a spiritual battle. We also know that all this demonic stuff that you're just talking about, Tom, is real. We see it in the New Testament. We have a number of stories in the New Testament where both the disciples and Jesus encounter demonic possession and demons. And uh, But we also know, and very clearly, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The name of Jesus and the authority that we have in Christ Jesus is greater than that which is in, in the world. So, um, look, I, I like to think that even though this battle is real, we can't see it. We sometimes see manifestations of it. We are not aware of all the things that are in this spiritual battle. Right. So I like to tell people, let's trust in the one who does. Let's let's pray to him who's the commander of all these forces in the first place, and I'm going to let him worry about the details. Um, one of the things that I always like to mention when we talk about the spirit world is this, that I do not believe, and we've talked about this before, that a believer who has been filled with the Holy Spirit can be indwelt or possessed by one of these demonic beings. I believe the world, the lost world can be, and that you were Mm -hmm. just describing instances where you've actually seen that, Uh, but I don't think a believer. Now, a believer can be harassed. A believer can be tormented. Satan torments and tempts and and harassed, but let's finish that, that, that a believer in Christ Jesus cannot be possessed by demonic forces. My biggest concern is that even among Christians, if we have a family member that comes to us and says, I can't sleep at night, I keep hearing these voices that say I'm worthless, that I kill myself. The first thing we do is let's go to the doctor. Well, I'm not against doctors. I work with a lot of doctors, had my own medical clinic. We had our own medical clinic for 10 years in one church. I believe in that. However, one of the best things you can do as a brother, sister, mother, father, or child is say, I'm willing to set up with you and pray with you every night didn't command these voices to be gone in the name of Jesus. And oftentimes there is power there that we don't tap into. I agree. And yet on the other end of it, when the medications have run out and they don't know what to do, I don't do anything magical. It's exactly what I do. I pray with them. I pronounce the name of Jesus and his shed blood, and I command the demons in his name to be quiet and to come out of them. And I've seen people get free. I've even heard stories where people simply turned on worship music in their house and whatever was happening that they didn't like, whatever it was, has gone away. Mm, so interesting. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish are my power panel today, and we're going to take a break, but that doesn't mean uh, we don't have time for your questions because we do. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I've got Todd Mullican coming up in the next hour. It's going to be a great discussion about anxiety. That's all next. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. 
Welcome back to Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn on my power panel today. So a question uh, came up. We had a lovely discussion yesterday with Dr. Leighton Flowers. We were talking about Calvinism, and another uh, question came up. And I think, Jeff, you heard the, the hour, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question was trying to resolve the Pharaoh hardened, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, just back to that discussion. Um, you know, one thing I, I think, do we know the condition of Pharaoh's heart before it was hardened? Well, I think we know that he was an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he... So his heart was hardened, right? Yeah, so he was not a follower of, of the Lord. I think uh, Egypt had many gods. In fact, the plagues that came on Egypt were all uh, designed to uh, show that the the Lord God in heaven was greater than every one of Egypt's gods. Um you know, one of the things that Flowers talked about yesterday was that uh, God can give people over in their unbelief and that the more you reject God, you reject God, you reject God. And, and maybe there's a point, uh, as indicated by some passages in Scripture, where God finally gives you over to it and basically says, all right, this is what you want. I'm going to give you over to it completely. And that was kind of the gist of Flowers' answers yesterday. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I agree with that in a lot of ways. But I think there's something else that we miss in this story. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but for what? He hardened Pharaoh's heart, I would argue, not about salvation or believing in the Lord or trusting in him in any way. It's very specific. God hardened Pharaoh's heart not to free the Israelites. Mm -hmm. I think that's what God hardened his heart. I don't think this has to do with salvation at all. Mm -hmm. God had a plan of 10 plagues that he was going to bring, culminating with a Passover of a lamb being slaughtered and the blood going over the door, and that was his plan. And when when Pharaoh looked like he was going to let them go before that, Ten plagues was completed. I think there. I think it has more to do with God hardening the heart of Pharaoh to not let Israel go. That's the context. That's what he hardened his heart about. And this, I don't really think this has anything to do with salvation or Calvinism in any way. Mm-hmm. No, I don't either. And here's why: you go to Romans and it talks about people have seen creation. They know everything that's out there. They're, they have no excuse, but they refuse to believe. And so God gave them over. I think you could translate the Hebrew word that we have as hardened as, you know, that God gave Pharaoh over to his hard heart. In other words, one makes it sound like the Lord, you know, just Pharaoh didn't have a chance. He was going to have a hardened heart no matter what happened. Pharaoh already was a hard man, and he already had a hard heart. And so the Lord, in essence, like it says in Romans, gave him over. So he only fulfilled what he would naturally do. But the Lord is saying, hey, it's not just him doing it. I'm involved in this too because I'm the one bringing the plagues and I'm going to demonstrate my power and that these are my people. Right. Here's a question. Um, Does Satan know our thoughts? I don't personally think so. God is the only one that Scripture describes as being omniscient, uh, knowing all things. Satan is a created being. He is an angelic being that fell. He rebelled and and was cast out of his position in heaven and now is called the prince of this world, the god of this age. Uh, He roams around like a lion looking for people to devour. He lies, he torments, he tempts. Uh, But there's nothing in Scripture that can indicate that he knows the, the thoughts of men. Now, here's what he does know. He knows men. He knows their 
tendencies and their behaviors. And if you're a businessman and you're out at a at a bar and, and he knows that while he can't read your thoughts, if you put some kind of attractive woman who says, uh, hey, what are you doing tonight? You know, he doesn't have to know uh, to read the man's thought to know what he just might do. So I agree with you. I, I do not believe that uh, Satan can read our thoughts. But he doesn't have to. He can watch our behavior. Yes, yeah, exactly. No kidding. And he's got all kinds of patience. He does. Yeah. So here's another question. I know a, a pastor <clears throat> that has been teaching other pastors that we have no power to cast out demons, which has concerned me. Today's earlier conversation was helpful. Can you suggest a resource I can read in preparation to talk with him or share with him? Yeah, I go back to Francis McNutt, deliver us from evil, deliver us from evil spirits, and have him call me. I mean, honestly, you know, I've been there. Uh, I, I've seen this stuff. I'm I'm not, you know, illogical about this. But I want to know where he's getting his information from and what experiences he's ever really had. And uh, if he'll give me his number, then I will make sure to call him the next time I have one of those and he can come sit with me. Yeah, I agree. Call Tom. <laughs> we see deliverance in scripture so um we actually see it it's in it's in the in the gospel so mm. i want to say this is an interesting comment uh this listener uh said through joel olstein ministries i f- finally was able to understand god's love for me and accepted him as my savior praise I was, god I, I praise god i was a baby christian then and since then, through my church and Bible study, Faith Radio, I've grown in my relationship with God. The struggle often is the digs or comments when I talk about coming to faith while listening to Joel Olstein. I have to believe that there is room to be reached through many ministries, and it will be between God and the person who misrepresents him. What do you guys, what, what do the guy talk, think? You know, the only thing that God has to use down on this world is the imperfect. Um, Some ministries are more imperfect than others, but it doesn't mean that God uh, cannot use them uh, none the same. So if she came to faith and understood uh, God's love for her through uh, this ministry and understood the gospel, the true gospel, which is the power unto God for salvation to whosoever believes, right? And she understood that Christ was died for her sins, was buried and rose again, and that's what she believed in and was saved, yeah. brought right before God. Well, then, you know, God bless Joel Olstein and what, what he said that allowed this woman to understand God's love for her. It would have been the authority of the word that he said. Yeah. Exactly. I have strong disagreement with Joel Osteen on a lot of things, I but he, he always gives an altar call at the end of his show. It's right at the very end. It's quick and to the point, but it's still there. And uh, the reality is uh, I have been blessed to see a lot of people come to Jesus despite my preaching. <laughs> and so I know that regardless of who you are and how you present it, the Lord can still use it to change people's hearts. Yeah. And so I say praise God, and I hope Joel wins many more of the kingdom. Well, imagine jo- uh, jo- Jonah going into N- Nineveh. <laughs> and his very lame sermon. Oh, my. He, he was very upset that the Lord redeemed them, and they repented. You know, I, he was very I don't think upset. I've ever done that in a sermon, but, you know, they repented. Forty Lord. more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. <laughs> yeah, and he wanted that to happen. That's my sermon. I'll see you later. <laughs> I'm here all week. Enjoy the veal. <laughs> wow. What are you guys laughing at? <laughs> no, it's true it's because it's nature. true. It yeah. is. Seriously, I don't trust you guys right now. 
It's very much human nature. Did I say something wrong? No, no, you just oh, said okay. it in such a you good way. It was just entertaining. Oh, okay. It was, and you're absolutely right. That that was Jonah's heart. Jonah yeah. basically said, no, God, let them perish. I don't want to go right. preach to them. Right. I don't want to do that. I'm going to go on a boat. And, you know, it's a lesson for me. And, and I was laughing because I recognized myself in Jonah. Can I confess that to you two nice. guys? Nobody else is. Yeah. I've got a lot of it. But I, I often think about certain, you know, people groups and I just go, oh, you know, let them let them perish in their unbelief kind Unreachable. of thing. Unreachable. Unreachable. Yeah. yeah. And and Wrong. I don't want to end up getting on a boat and sailing in the other direction because not a lot of good things happen when that happens. So if uh, I want to, wherever I go, let people know that God absolutely loves them. In fact, he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jonah is the prototype of every preacher that's ever lived. And what I mean by that is we're human beings. We make mistakes. We say stupid things. Despite that, the Lord redeems people and saves people, and we are called to pay attention and to do his will as best we can. You know, there's a there's a truth in Scripture. Today is not the day of judgment. If you're a believer and you are calling down God's judgment on people, just remember, we will one day judge the world, Paul says, but today is mm-hmm. not that day. God says today is the day of salvation. Yeah. And that's our message, not of condemnation, but of salvation. And I want you guys to know I trust you guys. (laughs) Come on. I trust you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's been good. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for another uh, rousing hour of Guy Talk, and thank you to all the people that sent over questions. You did a great job asking great questions, so thank you for taking a risk. Maybe you're a little in your uh, discomfort zone and you had to step out of it to send a question over and I hope you enjoyed the answer and I hope you enjoyed our fellowship and our time with you and thank you uh, for that. So we're going to let these guys exit the studio and then Todd Mulliken is going to come in and we're going to talk about anxiety with Todd. So uh, that's all next. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.